Hello and welcome to Airline Economics Sage podcast series, which speaks to veterans of the aviation finance and leasing industry to gain from their past experiences during this stressful time. Today we're speaking with John Ferrin. John spent 30 years with Boeing in various roles and working on many aircraft types from the MD-80s right up to the 787. After Boeing, John spent 10 years with Aviation Capital Group as a Senior Vice President of Business Development. And in 19, um, 2018, he joined L3 Technologies, where he supported commercial business development. In December last year, he formed Split Rock Aviation, an aviation advisory firm based in the US with former ACG colleague, uh, colleague Andy Mansell. John, welcome and thank you for participating in our Sage series of podcasts. I give you a short introduction there, but could you expand on the sort of projects you're working on at Split Rock? Well, thank you very much, Victoria. It's always a pleasure to be uh, talking to my friends at Airline Economics. You've always been so gracious and kind over the years. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, Split Rock Aviation is a small aviation advisory firm made up of five industry veterans. Uh, there's a I guess some benefits to being a uh, long-serving member in this industry. We have a little bit of perspective on things of uh, similar nature that have gone on, and maybe you can decide whether they apply or not to the current situation. We do um, boutique advisory projects raising capital for companies that want to uh, move in the aviation space. Um, For every investor that wants to run from the space in downturns, there's a lot of investors that want to get in because they think it's a good opportunity. I have a couple of airline clients that have us on retainers to do special projects that they deem fit. Um, we're certainly not a threat to anyone in the consulting business, but we're enjoying our time together and certainly uh, enjoy the intellectual stimulation of thinking about some of the daunting problems in our industry. Great. So um, just given then your 40-plus years in the industry, I wanted to ask your opinion about you know the impact of COVID-19 on the aviation sector and how you think that perhaps compares to other downturns we face? Well, it's a great question, Victoria, and I'm sure a, a lot of your listeners and um, close observers have thought about this a lot. I uh, lived through 9-11, uh, and it was quite a shock, although I think it was far more U.S.-centric, the pandemic, by many stretches, and certainly the, uh, the correction in the financial markets in 2008-2009 were a big uh, correction, but I still don't think they measure up to this pandemic. Um, There's kind of three aspects that make the pandemic unique in my mind. Uh, Certainly, number one is it's global, and uh, it's an invisible um, disease that people can get, and it impacts the entire portion of the travel experience. You know, in uh, 9-11, if you were safely on the airplane and you got to your destination, you could kind of take a deep sigh of relief uh, maybe it's a little stressful getting through um, the security because it was just being um, turned into a seamless process. But you really only had a small component of the whole travel experience. This impacts the entire travel experience. Uh, the second uh, impact right now is um, the number of people traveling is at an insignificant number to sustain global operations. I doubt there's an airline on the planet that's cash break even at this point if you don't include uh, government subsidies. And it's a very rare industry where people can afford to run at a loss for any sustained period of time. So not only do you have consumers quite traumatized by the disease, you also have a financial model that's really not working. And it 
probably the third component, it comes when the industry was churning at peak levels. I mean, the number of Airbus and Boeing airplanes and putting aside the, uh, the MAX situation were planned at record levels. And that enormous amount of capacity was coming in to fund a, a growth curve that by, uh, I think, all reckonings at this point is not achievable for several years. So you have high growth, you know, burning cash, and very traumatized consumers. It's a, it's a much more uh, horrific situation than I think anyone faced in any of the two prior crises. Not saying that there weren't people that, that were harmed in the other ones, but this one at a scale seems much larger to me. Yeah, indeed. I mean, it surely is extreme. Um, but even so, do you think there are lessons that we've learned in the past from previous downturns that you can apply today? Well, I certainly believe that uh, cash management was the um, common strength that differentiated the survivors and ultimately the winners in the two previous downturns. Uh, they were companies that quickly recognized uh, where they had to go to, and they weren't companies that cut 5%, 5%, 5%. They were companies that cut 25%. They were they were quick. They were decisive. They weren't trying to deny the uh, magnitude of the issue. And so I think um, for lessons learned, being decisive and being fairly realistic, that it's going to be a major impact. And maybe cutting a little bit more than you need to might cost you a little bit of upside, but it probably protects you against uh, long-term survival. I, I think the other... Um, a lesson that you will learn is that uh, you can't count on miracles. I mean, if you're building a strategy that only government subsidies are going to keep me in business or only uh, premium um, passengers in business class are going to ensure my survival, you've got a very weak plan. So I think you need to have a very pragmatic plan that recognizes where you have strength, where you can get revenue, and what are the variables you can control. And those management teams that are very pragmatic about that, I think, always do better in difficult situations than somebody that says, we're going to go out and raise money or we're going to make this a government's problem. I mean, the governments do, in my opinion, have an obligation, but I'm not certain you can build a strategy 100% around the government. And do you think that the level of government support for airlines has been adequate or will more help be needed? Well, it's... Um, it's a global issue, and different um, political groupings have different views on the importance of having a connected air travel system to the, their economy and to their citizens. And so it's somewhat difficult to generalize what government should be doing. I think we've demonstrated for decades that there's enormous value to a country in having a functioning and a broad international network of connectivity for freight, international commerce. Um, the benefits are really quite substantial, a multiplier effect that's uh, been documented many times. I think the, the governments have to, you know, realize that this iteration uh, could be something that's much greater than they planned for. You know, some people in the United States thought the initial CARES Act, which was to go for circa six months, would be more than enough, and that would be it. And all that money's been burned through, and the U.S. carriers are asking for a CARES too. 
And if we want to preserve the U.S. airline industry, I think everyone's come to the conclusion that that's going to be a necessary step. It may be in a slightly different form. There may be, you know, some equity stake that the government wants as a quid pro quo. But I think at the end of the day, these systems, which have effectively been shut down in many cases as people shelter in place, um, are a victim of a circumstance they didn't create. And so I think it's a society's interest to sustain this valuable industry over the long run and make prudent contributions where it's deemed appropriate. Yeah, and, uh, I know you're looking at the U.S. there, but I know this is a global issue, but looking at perhaps the three largest markets, the U.S., Asia, and Europe, do you think they've been impacted differently and then will they recover at different speeds as well? Well, I haven't um, followed China as closely as others, but my uh, high-level observation is China has recovered uh, much better than Europe or the United States. Um, and so I think the prospects in Asia are probably better. There's been some recent market um, news of um, spiraling cases in markets like Vietnam and, and other places, which I think we're going to find hot spots from time to time as this a disease can kind of move around uh, without any um, discrimination. And so I, I think you're always going to have um, some difficulty until we find a vaccine uh, for the uh, disease. But I think um, there's optimism in that the Chinese um, tourism market's picking up. Uh, the general travel in China is probably 75% of what it was uh, pre-pandemic, which is extraordinary on global standards. Um, there are some domestic markets in Europe, um, low-cost leisure travel markets in Europe that seem to have a uh, spark of life. But the um, long-haul international business travel uh, seems to be operating at a very minuscule level. And even the cream of the crop, airlines like Emirates are suffering mightily. Um, wonderful airline in uh, Central America, COPA, which effectively flies only internationally because of the nature of their country, has been uh, very severely impacted because of all the markets that are closed. And as you know, uh, Latin America has probably five of the top 10 incidents of uh, COVID in that uh, continent. So it's been a very um, challenging market, uh, depending on where you are geographically. So what do you think are the key challenges then facing airlines and lessors in this market? Well, we'll start with airlines. I think the key challenge is right-sizing your fleet. Um, you know, trying to get a realistic assessment of what your forward booking curve looks like and how you could possibly compare that to any of your historical data to give you some insight of how much of a fleet and a schedule you want to deploy. Um, the comparisons, I imagine, are very, very difficult for the airlines because I'm sure that historical events, people planning for holidays, uh, may be much more cautious today than they've been in the past. And you could get a, a major uptick as some confidence is restored with a, a vaccine, per se. But until confidence is there, I think uh, forward booking information is going to be difficult. Um, I think the airlines have to be very good stewards of their cash, that they have to be very 
judicious in where they're going to apply that cash because they just don't have a guarantee that the time of this uh, pandemic is going to be seven months or nine months. So, so you've got a plan for a very long-term situation and you have limited uh, resources to draw upon. And I guess, you know, without um, skipping the most important thing, you need to keep your employees healthy because if your staff um, is nervous about coming to work and then getting infected, that's a very uh, toxic environment. So you have to protect your staff um, in this time and you're, they're very critical to the whole entire operation. Uh, switching over to the leasing companies, um, you know, the lessors have been fairly proactive and offering deferrals to customers, whether it be a partial deferral or a complete deferral, but it's some negotiated arrangement on how to take current receivables and have them be paid over time. Um, the hope is that they do, in fact, get paid over time as the airlines recover. Um, historically, the recovery rate has been very high, and so I think it's been a fairly prudent bet by lessors. Um, lessors have to be very careful about taking back an airplane because all you're likely going to do is park it somewhere and have it uh, be for your account um, to monitor and shepherd it. Um, there are a number of available airplanes uh, for any given opportunity, could be 10, I hate to say it, but might be as close as 50 to one. And so the, the airlines are very aware that if they were to need capacity, at least in the near term, it wouldn't be a challenge at all. And I think the um, lessors that have kind of gone upscale and bought wide body airplanes to deal with long haul international travel have to be very concerned about the recovery of that market and how their carriers are going to um, adapt and whether they'll still need as many airplanes as they have. Both Airbus and Boeing have effectively cut their 787 and 8350 rates in half. And I think that might have been an optimistic assessment uh, based on uh, recent data. To your point on specific aircraft types being impacted more severely than others, do you think that the crisis might see the end of some of the types? And if so, how do you see that changing the leasing environment? Well, I think there's always a natural evolution of airplanes as they earn service for a couple of decades that um, you can extend that with engine upgrades, uh, product improvements, but you haven't seen that many programs that have been able to sustain themselves for much more than 20 or 25 years without significant upgrades. So for, for those airplanes that haven't um, been upgraded substantially um, in the last 15 or 20 years, they're likely to time out. Um, a favorite of mine, a 777-300ER, uh, is down to a very few quantum of airplanes. It's being um, new 777X will replace it. So you're going to see that airplane sunset. Um, I think you're going to see uh, a few other types get squeezed as manufacturers decide on the wisdom of just keeping a certain airplane in production for a limited quantity of airplanes. Um, we've seen some uptick on the freight side, but we've yet to see either Airbus or Boeing make a bold maneuver in the freight space. So uh, they may be studying uh, different opportunities there, which may impact their portfolios. 
but that would be uh, certainly an area that I think is an opportunity uh, for some um, bold movements by one company or the other. You just mentioned the MAX there. As someone who used to work for Boeing for a long time, are you confident that the aircraft will fly again? Well, I'm very confident that the regulatory process is in the later stages of completing. I think most of the uh, statements by the FAA and acknowledgement by fairly astute observers in the industry is that they're now a defined process to unground the airplane and return it to service. Uh, I couldn't have come at probably a more difficult time as now you've got 450 airplanes that Boeing has built and painted and put interiors in ready for delivery, and nobody needs them. And more importantly, nobody really wants them. And yet, um, you know, it's very important that those airplanes get delivered because they're part of the, the revenue plan for Boeing. And, you know, there's mitigation that needs to be arrived at between the parties for the period of delay. And so that's going to put some stress. Uh, I think that airplane fair statement to say has been as scrutinized and analyzed as closely as any airplane in recent history. And so I think the probability of a fairly smooth reentry is high. The um, unfortunate accidents had a very common core issue, and it was allowing the authorities to really uh, focus in on that and understand the man-machine interface that led to the accidents. Um, it doesn't make it any less tragic, but I think it gives you a fairly high confidence that they know exactly why it happened. They know what they can do to prevent it, and uh, I think they will train and uh, design the software such that we never see an MCAS event in the future. Certainly that's my sincere hope. You set up Split Rock Aviation to capitalize on those opportunities. And with this level of disruption, what kinds of opportunities do you see um, in aviation finance and leasing? So I think it falls in a couple of areas, Victoria. Um, one are the opportunists. Um, there's enormous um, private equity capital available. Um, and I think the evidence of that is, you know, look at the uh, strength of the U.S. stock market. Uh, either touching or establishing record highs in the middle of a pandemic. And so private equity looks at aviation as a place where you can def deploy measurable amounts of capital, um, hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, it's a fairly well-developed business. It's global. Um, it's largely standardized, so airplanes are traded in dollars. Um, there aren't that many types, and so it, it's kind of a very – um, attractive investment proposition and for investors that are opportunists they see the values having pulled back and yet they believe in the long-term 15-20 year horizon uh, might be just the perfect investment time and uh, I think that uh, you'll see evidence of maybe five or six companies coming in there um, the other side of the coin is as the um, pandemic drags on, the squeeze on existing players will be very painful. And you may find some companies that decide they want to exit the business and um, are willing to trade at values that might not otherwise have been available. So I think you'll see this um, 
change into the guard, so to speak, where uh, a cast of new investors enters and maybe a measurable number of his existing investors say, I need to move on. So I think it'll be um, an exciting time for the industry with some change. And uh, I don't think we've ever gone for many long period of time without some turbulence. So this will just be a more of the course, although hopefully we don't see another pandemic in the rest of our lifetimes. How positive are you that the industry will recover from this unprecedented crisis? You know, Victoria, I think I'm going to expose my ignorance. I don't. Uh, I wish I could uh, provide some wisdom or insight there. I, I kind of rely on the medical experts. Um, you know, I say some prayers every night, but uh, having any confidence in my insight would be misleading. Okay, how, how, how positive are you about the industry? You know, it's been growing so much for 10 years. Do you, do you think it's going to endure and it'll, it'll survive and there's a, still a need for travel? Oh, absolutely. I'm a highly confident industry. This is a transitional period. Some participants will exit. Um, some new companies will uh, enter. Um, I don't think the innate human desire to travel and explore will go away. I do think that we will find some of the trips that we used to make pre-pandemic will now be taken over by um, meetings from either a Zoom or Google Meets or other um, activities. Um, you know, you and Philip are putting on virtual conferences and that may discourage the boss at uh, Airbus or Boeing to say instead of sending 15 people to this conference, I can send five and 10 of you can come in by uh, virtual meeting. And so the industry will evolve, but I don't think it will fundamentally uh, turn our industry into um, a has-been. I think it's not going to the human interface, um, the level of um, knowledge you acquire from interacting with other people is still very difficult to replace virtually. But I would imagine that the front of the airplane business travel will be a little slower to recover as you know, entrepreneurs decide that there are other ways to accomplish things and sending a person on a first class trip to India or a first class trip um, on a you know six or seven thousand mile journey if we can do eighty percent or seventy five percent alternatively. But over time uh, the companies that uh, go out and meet customers will do better and the competition will say, well, I'm not going to lose this meeting because I'm afraid to go there or I'm not going to spend the money. And it'll be more, um, I think, the way business evolves. And so it'll be transitional. But, uh, you know, in time, we'll all look back at this a little bit like 9-11 and say it was horrific, but look where we are today. Indeed. On that note, I'd like to thank you, John, for sparing the time today and your insights on the market. Um, thank you very much. My pleasure. Best to you and uh, Philip and stay healthy.